Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Brilliant. Yes, yeah, great. Banks a lot better, but still a bit jiffy. I was arranging the furniture. What I do, many of you were praying for me as I went to the funeral of my mate from university, Adrian, yesterday. And some of you knew that um, two weeks before he died, he died very suddenly, unexpectedly. He told his son he'd like, if he had a funeral, me to take it. And some of you knew that uh, the dean of Llandaff Cathedral, he was going to take the majority of the service, and I was limited to the prayers. Uh, anyway, um, the coffin's brought in at 5 to 10, and um, not, not a clergyman in sight. No dean, no nothing. Um, and uh, the music keeps going. Comes to 10 o'clock, um, still no clergy in sight. Uh, the funeral director comes over to me and says, uh, have you seen the dean? Or being in Wales, he says, have you seen the dean? And I said, uh, no, but I could take the service for if you wanted. Okay, we get to five past 10, still no dean, so I go for it. <laughs> So I end up leading the whole service anyway. So never try and get in the way of the will of the sovereign God or Adrian Payne, it appears. Let's pray together as we come to Matthew 1. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness and for your love in the Lord Jesus. I thank you for these uh, precious verses in your word. Uh, please, with this unfamiliar sort of literature, Will you teach us wonderful truths for Jesus' name's sake? Amen. So we're bringing a little sort of mini Christmas series now. I paused John until the new year, and we're looking at Matthew 1, and then Matthew 1 again next week, and then we'll look probably at Matthew 2 in a carol service as well. 
And in our country, I think it's probably fair to say we live in times of uncertainty, don't we? I don't know whether you're feeling more certain after the Tory majority or less certain, um, but it feels uncertain. And generally, I think that as politicians make promises, well, even, even the most die-hard party faithful probably are struggling to believe them. I don't know about you, but after, after the election campaign, as it went on, I just got less and less keen on voting of any of the parties that, that were there. I, I rather wish we'd had the election the day after it was, it was announced. It feels like a time of uncertainty. And then whether you're pro-Brexit or against Brexit or you just don't care about Brexit anymore, we're all a bit uncertain about what post-Brexit will look like. You know, people are spending a bit less. There's a, industries are, are just waiting, holding on investment till they know what post-Brexit is going to look like. Uh, we're pretty unsure, aren't we, that we know what 2020 holds? You wouldn't be able to say, oh, I'm I, I definitely sure. I, I know what 2020 holds for me, either as an economy in this country or, or you personally. But because actually... Much of the uncertainty we face is not to do with politics or finance. It's to do with our personal lives. Now, some people in our church are facing the uncertainty of a serious diagnosis, uh, maybe for them or for someone they, they love. Some are facing the uncertainty of living for the first time through Christmas uh, without a husband uh, who they've been married to for a very long time um, because death has robbed them of that relationship. Some are facing the uncertainty of difficulties in personal relationships. Life can feel very uncertain, very fragile. One of the extraordinary things about the funeral yesterday was uh, it's for a guy in his early 50s. There are lots of guys in their 50s there were chatting. And the response of a lot of them was to, to be challenged by the fact that maybe death wasn't too far away for them. So they needed to get the bike out a bit more, needed to spend a bit more time with the kids. That's the way of coping with, with uncertainty. Now, this passage in Matthew's Gospel that we just had read is designed to bring comfort to people facing uncertainty. Now, you might wonder how a list of names could ever do that for you this morning, but, but that is what this is designed to do. It's designed to bring hope in the face of sadness, to bring security in the face of fear. Because uh, as Matthew writes, he writes largely to a Jewish audience, people who become Christians out of Judaism. And being a Christian for them meant there was massive uncertainty. They lived in the Roman Empire. And when you became a Christian out of a Jewish background, you were often thrown out of the synagogue. And the synagogue, it's not just like not being allowed to go to church. It was the center of the Jewish community, of the social life. It meant you were ostracized by people who'd been your friends for the whole of your life. It meant sometimes you were even ignored and rejected by your family. It wasn't just about adopting a new religion following Jesus. It was about a totally new way of life, a totally new culture. And it felt far less secure. You know, be a Jew in the Roman Empire, that was, that was okay. Being a Christian in the Roman Empire put you on the wrong side of the political authorities and the wrong side of your lifelong friends and relations. More than that, these people who Matthew's writing to, they've heard God's promises and they've, they've had them in the past. But the problem was for the, for the Jewish nation that it's 450 years since God said anything. That, that's how long it is since the end of the Old Testament, since Malachi, Nehemiah. Uh, so they look back and, and they can see what God has, has offered them in the past. They can see promises made to people like Abraham and, and David. 
but it's been awfully quiet for an awfully long time. So how can they be sure that this, this Jesus, he is actually the one who fulfills God's promises? That when the Apostle Paul writes, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, they can trust that. So whatever the circumstances of your life this morning, actually this passage has been designed by Matthew to give you some certainty. It tells us three things that if we understand them rightly will change totally our past, our present, and our future. Because here's the first thing. It shows us the faithful God who keeps his promises, the faithful God who keeps his promises. Verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that word genealogy literally means sort of origins. It's where we get the word Genesis from that we, we call the first book of the Bible. So this is a new beginning, says Matthew. But that word genealogy also can mean history. It's a new beginning, but this is actually simply the ongoing story of God's history, his relationship with his people, that the real history of the world, salvation history, this is the ongoing story of God fulfilling his promises. And we saw those promises. What were they? Well, if you've been in our children and youth work here, or if you're a parent and you've, you've read anything that's been sent home, you'll know promises to Abraham to make him a, a great nation, to give him a land, to make from him a nation that will bless the whole world. Promises to David that from him, that king of the Old Testament, who was around about 1,000 BC, from him would come a king who would rule over the whole world forever, whose dominion would have no end. So Matthew starts with Abraham in verse 2, and he descends down through David in verse 6, and he takes us to Jesus in verse 16 to show here is the promised one. God has kept his word down through the generations. And he's kept his word in the face of incredible unfaithfulness. Because it, it's not a smooth ride through the descendants of Abraham. It's actually a history of disobedience. A history of going after foreign gods. Uh, there are times when it looks like God's people have, have lost sight of him completely. Uh, for instance, down in verse 10, we've got evil king Manasseh named. When he was on the throne, he set up idolatrous statues in the heart of God's temple. That disobedience finally led to God punishing his people by taking them out of the land he promised them to exile in Babylon. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. The result, though, even then God promised that that exile would end. Not just they'd return to their, their capital, Jerusalem, after 70 years, but through the prophets he said, no, you're going to have a glorious future. Uh, there's going to be a baby who will be born who will be a, a great and mighty king. There'll be a servant who'll come and he'll suffer for you in your place. Though there'll be a shepherd who'll come, the Lord himself, and he'll tenderly gather you up as his people. And so down through the generations, God has stuck to his word. He set his sights on sending his son, and nothing was going to change that. No one was going to change that. Not even the fact that the people who he sends his son to reject him when he comes. Now, now what do you like at keeping your word? I think, I think most of us like to think we keep our word, don't we? I mean, it used to be said, you know, the English, an Englishman's word is his bond. 
In other words, whatever an Englishman said, you could, you could trust, he'd, he'd always do it, and probably speak like that as a result. There, there are various, various movies, Christmas movies, some better than others, based on keeping your word. There's that classic with Arnie, Jingle All the Way. Arnie's promised his son, Turbo Man, and the whole film is based around Arnie finding Turbo Man. I can see from your blank looks you've never watched this film. Never mind. You can Google it when you go home and waste an afternoon. Even better, I hope you've all seen Arthur Christmas. Arthur Christmas, the true story of Santa. And um, in this, Arthur's got to get the promised bicycle to the little girl in Cornwall because Santa always keeps his word. We, we like to think we're people who keep our word, don't we? But the problem is with promises, actually a lot of them we, we struggle to keep. I mean, even, in fact, I think probably the, the ones that are most important are the ones we struggle to keep. That's down to, that's down to our character. I just think about the promises that I made at my wedding. To give my wife all that I am and to share with her all that I have. To always honor her, to always love her, to always cherish her. That would be a lovely thing to do, wouldn't it? To always cherish her and to always protect her. See, the problem, the problem with us as human beings is we, we talk a great game, don't we? But we rarely pull it off in the cold reality of our, of our sin, of our selfishness. But Matthew shows us here is the faithful God who always keeps his promises. Whatever you do, he keeps his promises. And that means you can trust him in all the circumstances of your life. Whatever life throws at you, the Lord will never let you go. Whatever you throw at him, the Lord will never let you go. Because his promises, they don't depend on, on you keeping your side of the bargain. They depend on his character, the merciful and compassionate God. He always keeps his word. I mean, if you can find one of good, God's good promises in, in the Bible that he, he hasn't kept... Well, come and tell me. Because actually the Bible is a history of God saying things and then doing things. He's got a 100% record so far in promise keeping. Well, why, would we, why would we want to stop trusting him now? So, so whether it's that stress and pressure in the workplace and you feel, feel it's just not worth obeying the Lord in it. No, he will be faithful to you there. He, he will uphold you. Whether it's uh, sitting beside the bed of a, of a loved one um, as, as you see them suffer. And you think, where is the Lord in this? No, the Lord is faithful. He walks with people through the valley of the shadow of death. Whether it's struggling at home as, as the kids kick off again and you think, surely, Lord, this is not working, this training and disciplining them in your name. No, the Lord is faithful. You need to keep at it. Whether you're, you're feeling totally alone, that in terms of the objective reality of your heart, the subjective reality of your heart, you, you just don't think God is there. No, the Lord is faithful. He never leaves or forsakes you. He is present with you. He keeps every one of his good promises, whoever you are and whatever you've done. Because that's, that's the second thing we see. We see this is the gracious God who welcomes sinners. He's the faithful God who keeps his promises, but he's the gracious God who welcomes sinners. I wonder if you, if you notice the, the sort of breaks in the pattern of this genealogy as it was read. 
Jewish genealogies would always trace down the male family line. But Jesus' contains five women. Verse 3, there is Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And then verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And of course, there's Mary herself in verse 16. Now, this is, this is the God of all people, and that's emphasized by these women. Matthew's put them in very deliberately. For starters, they weren't Jewish. Tamar's a local Canaanite girl. Rahab was an Amorite who lived in Jericho. Ruth was from Moab. And Uriah was a Hittite. So probably Bathsheba would have been regarded as a Hittite because she was married to him. They were outsiders who were welcomed as insiders by God's people. More than that, if you had to pick a girlfriend for your lad, you wouldn't pick one of these women. Tamar tempted her father-in-law Judah into an incestuous relationship by dressing up as a shrine prostitute and sitting by the road. He'd failed to fulfill his vow that, that his younger son should marry him, her after his older son had died. But, but actually, she tempted him into sex with her, and therefore Perez and Zerar, it's a slightly confusing thing, because their daddy was also their sort of granddaddy-in-law. Uh, then you know if you've been in the evening. Joshua, uh, the book of Joshua, Rahab is a prostitute. That's her job description. In fact, the writer of Joshua is so keen that we know that, sometimes he just calls her the prostitute. Uh, Ruth, she's, she seems a nice lass, doesn't she, Ruth? But, but she is from the tribe of Moab. And Moab, throughout the Old Testament, are, are primarily known from luring God's people into sexual sin. That's what the Moabitess was thought of. And we don't get poor old Bathsheba's name, do we? We're just told she used to be Uriah's wife. To remind, her that it was, to remind us that it's adultery and murder that, that got Solomon born. And then there's Mary. Matthew starts, and we'll see this next week, his account of Jesus' life with Joseph struggling to believe that Mary's miraculously become birth, there was an angel, I promise, and thinking she's done the dirty on him. You know, the family tree of the Son of God is a demonstration of his grace. It's, it's not a nice, neat collection of sort of upstanding Disney princesses. It's littered with people whose, whose sin and whose failure were obvious to all around them. People who've been used and abused. Jesus' family includes the disgraced and the disgraceful, the shamed and the shameful. You know, this is the God who has a history of welcoming sinners. The gracious Lord who, who takes in the, the very people who failed him, who draws into a loving relationship those who haven't loved him. And that's going to be the heart of, of Jesus' mission. His name, you know it means the Lord saves. And this genealogy is a list of the Lord saving. I mean, even the heroes, Abraham and, and David, they're far from perfect. I mean, read Abraham's life. He constantly fails to trust God, tries to pass Sarah, his wife, off as his sister twice because he's such a wimp. And then, of course, David falling for beautiful bathtub beauty Bathsheba and the rest, as they say, is history. See, if you try to read the Bible as a, as a history of the religiously upstanding or the morally upright or examples to follow, you're always going to be disappointed. Because the Bible is a history 
of the persistent love of God in saving and forgiving sinners. It's a catalog of his grace. It's people being taken from a, a position where they deserve his righteous anger and being brought into a position when they only know his compassionate love. It's people being snatched from the mess they've made of their own lives but by the God they've rejected. That means God's for anyone. The Lord is for anyone. No one can be excluded from the Lord's forgiving love because of, of who they are or what they've done. Or perhaps you, you feel you don't fit in amongst God's people. That, that if we here this morning knew your past, or even if we knew your present, we wouldn't, we wouldn't greet you with those warm church smiles we put on. Shake your hand at the door and offer you a cup of coffee at the end. We'd just be slightly less keen on knowing you. Well, you can't do anything, anything to exclude you from God's people. Perhaps you feel a bit of an outsider, not from the right background, not from the right group. You don't even own a check shirt. Well, I'm very sorry for the times maybe we've made you feel like that as a church. We, we can do that. We don't mean to, but we can. But there's no right group. There's, there's no right background. We, we all come to Jesus on the level ground that, that we, are, we are sinners. We're those who failed God and failed each other. And we need a gracious Savior. That's our only hope. Or maybe you've been thinking about your friends and family and inviting them to the carol service, or maybe even thinking about uh, doing a word one-to-one -one and reading John's gospel with them that we've been studying in the mornings together, or, or inviting them on the Christianity Explore course in January. Uh, and you've been thinking, well, I might as well not bother, because um, they're, they're just not going to be interested. They're not the right type of person. Well, here, here is a wonderful encouragement from Jesus' family history. It's filled with the wrong type of people, the least likely type of people. And there's plenty of room in his family for more wrong type of people because God is the gracious God who saves sinners. And relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Messiah is open to all who will come to him. But you must come to him because that's the last thing to see. He is the sovereign God who writes history. See, the faithful God who keeps his promises, the gracious God who welcomes sinners, and the sovereign God who writes history. You see, that's why Matthew crafted this genealogy so carefully. So we're in no doubt that he's, he's not made any mistakes. The Lord has not made mistakes. Uh, look at verse 17, the last verse with me. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, if you count carefully, you might think, I'm not sure you've got that addition right, Matthew. Don't waste the next five minutes of your life doing that. You actually will probably need to count David twice and Jeconiah twice. But genealogies were never designed to be read as tight timelines. And if you're hot on your history of Israel's kings, you'll have spotted that three have been left out, particularly between, let's say, Jehoram and Uzziah. Three particularly nasty kings have been left out in verse 8. It's also highly unlikely that in the 400 years that go from Perez in verse 3 to Aminadab in verse 4, there's only been a couple of generations. That's because the word we've translated father of in our Bible more has the sense of was the ancestor of. 
See, this isn't supposed to be a, a complete historical record of all Jesus' relations. That's not the way Jewish genealogies work. It's supposed to be a theologically accurate record. That's why Matthew talks about 14 generations. It's just a little hint. If you take the, the Hebrew for David, David, uh, the consonants, their, their numerical value is 14. It's as though Matthew's saying all the way through Jesus' genealogy, it's the fact that he is the king that matters. This is all about the Messiah. He is the one who dominates this list from beginning to end. His kingdom is, is the purpose of all these names. Actually, his kingdom is the purpose of every person who's ever lived. The very things that the rest of Matthew's book is going to talk to us about, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, what it means to live with him as king, that is not just the point of the Bible, it's the point of world history. It's the point of the whole of creation. That's why literally, verse 16, it says, Jacob, the ancestor of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. In other words, Mary was passive in having Jesus. Now, if you're a mum here, you'll know that, that, that having children did not feel passive. Even if you had an elective caesarean, you know, the nine months beforehand and the getting over it afterwards does not feel like a passive experience. But, but Matthew's point is this. Jesus is neither Joseph nor Mary's idea, nor is he the product of their labors. He is the one given by God. He is the pinnacle of God's plan. This is what God is doing. You've probably seen those cheesy Christmas cards, you know, that he's the reason for the season. Or you've maybe heard a, a preacher say his story is his story. But it's true that the whole of time is the personal story of Jesus Christ. Not starting at Christmas and ending at his death. Not even starting at Christmas and ending when he returns, no, the whole of time from before the creation of the world into eternity is the personal story of Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, the only reason you or any other human being exists in the plan of God is for Jesus Christ. I, I'm sorry to rob you of a little fallacy but you are not the center of the universe. In fact, you're not even the center of your own life, and that's true of you this morning, whether you believe in Jesus or not. Because the whole of history is Jesus. Now, that's an easy thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite a hard idea to grasp. It's an even harder one to, to live. What does it mean that you and I exist for Jesus? Not, not just like Sundays or Sundays in a life group or, or Sundays in a life group in our Bible time in the morning. He's not just part of our lives, but actually the, the whole of our lives are about his kingdom. His kingdom is the kingdom. His rule is the rule. And one day that'll matter to all of us. In fact, one day that'll matter to every human being who's ever lived because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. That's why, by the way, we don't need to be afraid in the light of the election. Even if you're, you're an ardent Labour supporter, we don't, we don't actually have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of Brexit. But because, actually, they are not the big things that are happening in our country. 
The kingdom of Jesus is the big thing. But because the reality is the reason that today exists is solely for people to live for Jesus as king and to accept Jesus as king. That, that's the purpose of the age that we live in. Which means that Jesus is for all times. There's not a moment of day or night in your life that he is not the ruler of. Not a moment he's not the purpose of. Not a moment that is not for his glory. Not a second that's not for his service. Not an hour that's not for you to honor him. And if I started to think through how that would, how that would affect my life, I mean, we, could, we could be here probably for eternity trying to work it out. So, so just let me ask you a few simple questions. Has Jesus been at the center of your spending as you prepared for Christmas? Has Jesus been at the center of the way you've planned your relationships as you prepare for Christmas? Especially with those maybe who don't know him. Has Jesus been at the center of, of your family as you've talked to, to wives and children, to friends this Christmas? Is Jesus at the center of your desires, of, of your planning for, for 2020? Because if the only reason we're here is Jesus Christ, he is the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created, living like that is, is not insanity. That, that's just reality, isn't it? I mean, the insane thing to do is to try and, try and live as though the whole of life wasn't about Jesus, as though he wasn't sustaining us and giving us breath. I mean, how stupid would that be to spend most of the time not thinking about the one who's giving you life itself as you're thinking? Well, that's a ridiculous thing to do. That makes no sense. But that, that's the way I live most of the time. And you pay me to think about Jesus. No, no, let's, let's try and make him the center of everything. It's never too late to make Jesus Christ the reality you live. Why? Well, because the Lord's the faithful God. And however unfaithful you are to him, he'll always keep his promises to you. Because the Lord's the gracious God. However you f much you feel you've sinned, he'll always welcome you back and welcome you in. So let's live as though the Lord is the sovereign God, that everything is about Jesus, that the one in which, who every promise is yes, and the one in whom we see grace made and revealed perfectly in his life, in his death for us, and in his resurrection to new life and ascension to glory. Let's live genuinely for Jesus. Should we pray together? Let's pray. Maybe there are, there are particular uh, plans or um, particular people that you just want to bring before the Lord now and ask, ask him, for wisdom and for courage to know how to make Jesus the center of them, what, what that'll look like. Father in heaven, thank you that you are so faithful when we are so fickle. We praise you for your steadfast compassion. Thank you that you are so gracious and so kind when we are often slow to forgive 
and so selfish. Thank you for your costly love that sent the Lord Jesus to the cross. And Father, thank you that you overrule every moment of our lives, and therefore the, the most sane thing that anyone can do is to live every moment of their lives for Jesus. Now please, by your Spirit, help us to do that for his precious name's sake. Amen.